during the 45 years that the Buddha was teaching, he used a, um, a variety of forms to teach, depending on the situation and the mental disposition of his listeners. Sometimes he would use similes or analogies to make his listeners understand. At other times, he was exposing bare facts of the true nature of mental and physical phenomena in order to make them understand. At other times, he asked, asked questions and trying in this way to make them understand. And sometimes his answer was simply to keep silent. Whatever the means were to teach his nuns and monks, lay followers or ascetics from other traditions, it was always aimed at making them understand the way leading to Nibbana, the way leading to the cessation of suffering. In the sutta called Daru Kando Pama Sutta, the Buddha made something very simple to the subject of his talk. It was a lock that was flowing down the river Ganges. In English, this sutta is called the parable of the lock. With this simple example, the Buddha tried to explain to his disciples of how one can reach the ocean of Nibbana. This discourse was delivered at the time when the Buddha was staying in Kosambi together with a group of 500 monks. One day in the morning, they left the city walking in a line with the Buddha at its head. When they came to a group of big trees on the bank of the river Ganges, the Buddha pointed out to Ananda, his attendant, that he wanted to take rest there. So then Ananda folded the robe that he was carrying um, for the Buddha and spread it out on the grass under the trees. So then the Buddha sat down on the seat prepared for him and the monks also sat down. It is said 250 um, each on either side of the Buddha. So try to imagine how this must have looked like. It could be a group of large mango trees under which the Buddha and his monks were taking rest. Or maybe there were jackfruit trees. So sitting there in the shade of the tree, surrounded by his 500 monks, he could see the water of the river Ganges flowing by steadily and slowly. The monks were respectfully holding, holding their hands in Anjali, paying respect to their teacher. And nearby there was a pasture with green and fresh grass. A cowherd named Nanda 
was looking after the cows that different owners had entrusted to him. So this is the scene where the Buddha and the monks took rest. So while the Buddha was sitting there facing the river Ganges, he saw a log that was um, carried down in the current of the river. Immediately he had an idea. He thought that it would be good and beneficial to give a discourse, taking this log as an example. And he also knew that it would be conducive for his monks um, to realize Nibbana. Therefore, he lifted his arm and pointed to the log in the river. He said, Bhikkhus, do you see that great log being carried down in the current of the river? I was just saying that the Buddha was taking rest in the shade of the trees. But as soon as he saw this log being carried down in the river, he started to give a discourse to his disciples. This shows the enormous compassion that the Buddha had, not only for his disciples, but for all living beings. In every situation and in every moment, he was only concerned with the welfare of others. He was only concerned of how he could benefit others. He could have just taken rest there, simply taking rest without being concerned about other beings' welfare. But out of his great compassion, or Maha Karuna, he took every opportunity to teach all beings, beings who are immersed in the ocean of samsara with all different kinds of suffering. What the Buddha was concerned with was to teach a way out of suffering, out of the sufferings of old age, disease and death. So without this great compassion, Mahakaruna, he surely would have just taken rest there without delivering a talk. We should not only respect and admire the Buddha for his great compassion that he showed in his life as the Buddha, but also for his great compassion that he already had during his life as a bodhisattva. As we know, a bodhisattva is a being who aspires, aspires to become a Buddha. That means a fully enlightened, enlightened being and thereby practices various perfections and qualities which are needed to become a Buddha. Out of compassion for innumerable, innumerable beings who were living in misery and poverty, the Bodhisattva gave away many of his possessions many, many times. Or 
there were also many existences during which he offered his limbs or some of his organs to whoever was in need or to whoever came and asked for it. In one life as the King Sivi, he was approached by an old Brahmin who was blind and so asked for his eyes. And the Bodhisattva, as the King Sivi, without hesitating, he took out his eyes and gave it to the blind Brahmin. And it is also said that during many of his lifetimes as a Bodhisattva, he even gave away his life. We have the story of the, the Bodhisattva being a prince, coming across a hungry and starving tigress, uh, which couldn't feed her cubs. And so out of compassion for the tigress and her cubs, he offered his life. It is said to fulfill these perfections, these qualities needed to become a fully enlightened Buddha. He, uh, it took four incalculables and a hundred thousand worlds. And besides Karuna, there were other perfections that he had to fulfill. Myoshin has talked about these ten perfections in her previous talks. So when we respect the Buddha, it's not only for the Buddha in his last life as the fully enlightened Buddha, but we should also respect him um, for when he still was a bodhisattva. So going back to the discourse, instead of just taking rest, he pointed out to the log in the water and started to deliver, to deliver a talk. So then the Buddha continued, Monks, if that log is not caught on the near bank, if that log is not caught on the far bank, if that log is not submerged under the water, if that log does not land on a small island, if that log is not taken away by human beings, if that log is not taken away by non-human beings, if that log does not sink into a whirlpool, if that log does not become rotten, then it will reach the ocean. Here the Buddha points out that if there is none of these eight faults, the log will inevitably reach the ocean. Therefore, if the log gets caught on the near bank, will it then reach the ocean? Of course not. Stranded on the near bank, it's sitting there. Or if the log is submerged under the water, will it reach the ocean? Again, the answer is no. Only when it is free from all of these eight faults is it possible for the log to
to be carried down in the current of the river and reach the ocean. And why is this so? Because the current of the river Ganges, as well as all the currents of all the rivers, they incline all this land towards the ocean. And then the Buddha continued to say, in the same way because if you have none of these eight faults, you will reach Nibbana. And why is this so? Because Samaditi, which means right understanding, inclines towards Nibbana, the cessation of suffering. When this was said, one of the young monks requested the Buddha to explain the simile, as he couldn't understand the meaning of these words. Among his disciples, there were monks with different levels of understanding, those with high and sharp intelligence could immediately grasp the meaning of the Buddha's words. Those with middle intelligence, they also could understand what the Buddha was pointing at. But those of weak intelligence were unable to understand what the Buddha was referring to. That's why, that's why one of the younger monks asked the Buddha for an explanation. So he asked, Venerable Sir, what do you mean by caught on the near bank? And the Buddha replied, the near bank refers to the six internal sense bases. So these six internal sense bases, what are they? They are the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. They are also called the six sense doors because they are the doors through which the objects enter the mind and then can be perceived by the mind. And the young monk continued to ask, Venerable Sir, what do you mean by caught on the far bank? And the Buddha answered, the far bank refers to the six external sense bases. And what are these six external sense bases? They are visible forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible objects, and mind objects. These six external sense bases, they are also referred to as the sense objects, because they are the respective objects that can be perceived by the mind through the six internal sense bases or sense doors. And after that, the young monk continued to ask about the meaning of the other expressions. In short, 
to be submerged under the water means delight, clinging, lust. Landing on a small island is a designation for pride, conceit, haughtiness. Getting caught by human beings means to mix with people in an improper way. And to get caught by non-human beings means to live, to live with the aspiration uh, to be reborn in the Deva realm. Sinking into a whirlpool is a designation for the five courts of sensual pleasures. And becoming rotten means that someone is pretending to be virtuous, although one is not. So today I'm going to talk about the first two ways that prevent the log from reaching the ocean. They are being caught on the near and far bank. In other words, this means to get stuck on the internal and external sense bases. First of all, I want to say a few words about the mind. In Buddhist psychology, what we refer to as mind or consciousness is called citta. This citta, mind or consciousness, knows the object. It is a pure cognition of the object that comes in contact with the sense door. Let's take the example of seeing a flower, like the beautiful flowers that we have here. So the flower is the visible object, or to speak with the uh, sutta, it's the external sense base. Then the eye is the internal sense base, or the sense door. So when there is a visible object and the eye, then there arises consciousness, which sees the object, which sees the flower. So the eye, the physical organ of the eye, actually cannot see. It is the mind, the consciousness, the seeing consciousness that sees. And in the case of the sense door of the eye, we call this consciousness the eye consciousness. This eye consciousness arises depending on the eye, the visible object, and the contact between them. Only when a visible object, like the flower, contacts the eye, then eye consciousness arises. Without any contact, there wouldn't arise any eye consciousness. And so this eye consciousness knows the object. It just cognizes that there is an object, just this much. Now in order to identify 
or to recognize the object, the consciousness needs the help of certain mental factors. These mental factors, they arise together with citta or the consciousness. And these mental factors, they all have very specific tasks to help consciousness to identify or recognize the object. These mental factors, they assist citta by performing very special tasks in the total act of cognition. And these mental factors, they cannot arise without citta, nor can citta arise completely segregated from these mental factors. They are interdependent, but citta is regarded as the chief or the leader. The relationship between citta and the mental factors is like the relationship between a king and his retinue. Although one says the king is coming, the king never comes alone. He is always accompanied by some attendants or ministers, always uh, accompanied by uh, his retinue. Or last month, we had Chamiye Sayado teaching here. And when Chamiye Sayado was coming here to the meditation hall to give a Dhamma talk, he never came alone, but he always was accompanied by Uvamsarakita, the Canadian monk who was assisting him, and Edwin, who was taking care of Sayadaw in various ways. So, although we were sitting and waiting for Sayadaw coming and then hearing steps approaching, uh, I would think, ah, Sayadaw is coming. But Sayadaw wasn't coming alone, but he had these two persons accompanying him. So similarly, when a citta consciousness is arising, it never arises alone, but is always accompanied by a retinue of mental factors. Let's go back to the example of the flower. So the eye consciousness knows the object, it cognizes uh, that there is an object. And it is the mental factor of perception that identifies this visible object as a flower. It is this mental factor called perception or sanya in Pali that perceives the qualities of the object and then compares it to what has been previously perceived. And then it interprets the object by the way of its feature that have been apprehended. 
So in our case, the object consists of a stalk, of leaves, and some petals. And so therefore, it is identified or recognized as a flower. And if you have seen this kind of flower before, then there will also arise a name for this flower. For this flower, I don't know the English name. In our Swiss-German language, we call it Fräsie. So now seeing this flower here, um, if I think in English, then it's just a flower. It wouldn't have a more specific name. Now, another mental factor that is arising with each moment of consciousness is feeling, Vedana in Pali. And this mental factor feeling is experiencing the object in its affective mode in which the object is experienced. And as we know, this can be either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Looking at a beautiful flower, for example, it is most likely that a pleasant feeling arises. And then, depending on this pleasant feeling, there can arise the desire to get this flower. One can um, want this flower. And so, generally speaking, attachment arises. And this is called loba in Pali. Now, if we have get hold of this flower and think, this is my flower, then if somebody comes and takes away this flower, then it's most likely that an unpleasant feeling arises. Get upset or irritated or even angry at the person who takes away this flower. And this is experienced as an unpleasant feeling. And so the response to it are unpleasant mental states, aversion, ill will, irritation, frustration, and the like. And these kind of mental states are all coming under the category of dosa. Now, attachment and aversion, or loba and dosa, do they bring you happiness or unhappiness? Of course, unhappiness, unsatisfactoriness. And why do you have this unhappiness or unsatisfactoriness, because you are caught on the near bank as well as on the far bank. You are stuck <coughs> on the six internal sense bases, which are the eye, the ear, 
the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind. Or you're stranded on the six sense doors. And you're also caught on the far bank, which means the external sense bases, the visible form, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the tangible objects, and the mental objects. Or it means you're stranded, get caught in the sense objects. And if you are caught on the near bank as well as on the far bank, then you will never reach the ocean. That means then you will not become enlightened. As you have seen, we have these six internal sense bases and the six external sense bases. When a visible form contacts the eye, then eye consciousness arises. And in the same way, when a sound comes in contact with the ear, then ear consciousness arises. When a smell comes in contact with the nose, we say nose consciousness arises. When a taste comes in contact with the tongue, then the tongue consciousness arises. And when a tangible object touches the body, then body consciousness arises. And when a mental object arises and comes in contact with the mind, mind consciousness arises. So in this way, we also have six different kinds of consciousness. The eye consciousness, for example, can only cognize visible forms. Um, it cannot hear sounds or smell a fragrance. Or ear consciousness can only hear sounds. It's impossible for ear consciousness to see something or uh, to feel the touch of something. So at each of the sense doors, there arises the corresponding consciousness. So this consciousness arises, knows the object, cognizes the object, but then immediately passes away. Consciousness, or citta, is also an impermanent process. It's not something everlasting or permanent. And so the cognition of the object doesn't last for even a second, not even for a millionth of a second. After one moment of consciousness has arisen, cognize the object, it passes away, only to be immediately followed by the next moment of consciousness and that again passes away very quickly. So, citta, consciousness, mind, is just a series of momentary arisings and passings away of consciousness. It happens very, very fast. And this process 
is so fast and so swift that we normally are not able to perceive it in this way. We mostly think of consciousness as an unbroken stream. And so then, coming back to the example of the flower, when we see the flower, we take this act of seeing as a personal process and say, I see a flower, or it is me who sees the flower. Somehow we think that there is an I or an ego in or behind this consciousness of seeing. We somehow think that ultimately it is the I which sees, which hears, which smells, which tastes, which touches, or which thinks. And it is this idea of I or me that is taken for something solid, something indestructible. At the time of the Buddha, it was referred to as Atta. And this Atta was believed to be indestructible, to be permanent and everlasting, being contained in a person's or being's life from birth to death. But now, when we take this Atta, or this ego, this I, um, to be the consciousness or the mind, then we have to conclude that this I or Atta um, cannot actually be the consciousness or mind, because by definition, this I would have been, must be something which is permanent, lasting. But knowing from our experience, consciousness, the mind, is not a lasting or permanent entity, but subject to impermanence, arising, passing away all the time. Once the Buddha explained it with the following illustration. A fire is named according to the material on account of which it burns. So a fire that burns on account of wood is called a wood fire. If we make a fire with straw, then it would be called a straw fire. And if there is fire or a flame that burns on account of gas, then we would call it a gas flame, a gas fire. The Venerable Buddha Gosa, which wrote many famous commentaries in the 5th century, uh, he explained this point as follows. A fire that burns on account of wood burns only when there is a supply of wood, but it dies down in that very place when the supply is no longer there. 
Even so, the consciousness that arises on account of the eye and visible form arises in that gate of sense organ, which means the eye, only when there is the condition of the eye, the visible form, light and attention. But it ceases when the condition is no more there. Let's assume that it is night and we are in a room where it is pitch dark. In our hands we hold a flower, which is the object. And let's assume we are not blind, we have functioning eyes and we even have the attention to see the flower holding in our hand. But in this pitch dark room, can we see the flower? Surely not. And why is this so? Because one of the conditions that needs to be there for um, eye consciousness to arise, one of these conditions is missing. And this is the light. As soon as we would turn on the light in that room, then immediately we would be able to see the flower. In one of his retreats, Chamie Sayado used the following example. Imagine there is one person who is sitting inside a room made completely of glass. He's sitting in a classroom and another person is standing outside of this classroom and is talking to the person inside the room. Now the person sitting inside the classroom is not deaf, he has ear which are functioning. He has also the attention to listen to what the person standing outside is saying. But still, he cannot hear the words. Why is this so? For ear consciousness to arise, there also need to be certain conditions present. There needs to be the ear, a functioning ear, the sound, the other person who is talking and there needs to be the attention from the person to want to listen. So we all have these conditions. We even have light. But for ear consciousness, light is not necessary. Um, but in this case, because there is no contact between the sound and the ear, um, the man inside cannot hear. And in this case, um, for contact to happen, there must be the space, like unobstructed space, so that the sound can go and touch the ear. But because there is this separation of the glass wall, so the sound 
cannot um, come in contact with the ear of the person sitting inside. So in these examples, it is quite obvious that the eye, for example, cannot hear sounds or that the ear, for example, cannot see visible forms. Before I said that consciousness, the mind, is in a constant flux, always changing, arising and disappearing one moment after the other. So at one given time, there cannot only exist, at one given time, there can only exist one moment of consciousness. So when there is a moment of um, eye consciousness, then at the same time, ear consciousness cannot arise. <coughs> so it's not possible to simultaneously hear and see at the same time. But because it happens so fast, it gives us the impression that it happens together at the same time. In our ordinary existing mode, we perceive it as seeing, hearing, and even tasting at the same time. But in deep meditation, however, this false notion can be realized when the experience is breaking down into small parts, when it is breaking down into extremely tiny moments of happenings, of moments of consciousness arising and passing away one after the other. So, when we start to realize this impermanent nature, seeing the arising and disappearing um, of things, seeing that the disappearing of one thing is conditioning the next thing to arise, then we have to admit, we come to uh, the realization that there is no unchanging or solid substance in these processes at all. There is nothing that could be referred to as the I, the ego, or the Atta. So, neither consciousness nor the mental factors which are arising together with consciousness um, are everlasting or uh, unchanging entities. Now let's go back to the parable of the log. We are dealing with the six internal and six external sense bases, which were compared by the Buddha with the near and far bank of the river Ganges. At a different time, the Buddha used the simile of the six animals to show how the six sense bases the six 
sense doors are like animals, each drawn to their natural habitat. And it is only by way of sense restraint that one can prevent from falling back into uh, habitual reactions. Sense restraint means to be watchful at the six sense doors all the time in order to know what object is entering the mind. So there, in this simile of the six animals, the Buddha said, Suppose, O monks, a man would catch six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds and tie them by a strong rope. He would catch a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal and a monkey and tie each by a strong rope. Having done so, he would tie the ropes together with a knot in the middle and release them. Then those six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds would each pull in the direction of its own feeding ground. The snake would pull one way, thinking, let me enter an anthill. The crocodile would pull another way, thinking, let me enter the water. The bird would pull another way, thinking, let me fly up to the sky. The dog would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a village. The jackal would pull in another way, thinking, let me enter, enter a charnel ground. And the monkey would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a forest. And the Buddha continued to say, now when these six animals become worn out and fatigued, they would be dominated by the one among them that was strongest. They would submit to it and come under its control. So too, because when a bhikkhu has not developed and cultivated mindfulness directed to the body, the eye pulls in the direction of pleasing forms and displeasing forms are repulsive. The ear pulls in the direction of pleasing sounds and displeasing sounds are repulsive. The nose pulls in the direction of pleasing others and displeasing others are repulsive. The tongue pulls in the direction of pleasing tastes and displeasing tastes are repulsive. The body pulls in the direction of pleasing tactile objects and displeasing tactile objects are repulsive. And the mind pulls in the direction of pleasing mental phenomena and displeasing mental phenomena are repulsive. In this way, O monks, there is non-restraint. And then the Buddha continued to say, when all of these six animals become, become worn out and fatigued, then all of them would stand close to the pillar or 
they would all sit down, sit down there or lie down there. And he said, in the same way, when a bhikkhu has cultivated mindfulness directed towards the body, then the eye doesn't pull in the direction of pleasing forms, nor are displeasing forms repulsive. And in the same way, um, it is valid for the other uh, sense objects. So then the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind, they do not pull in the direction of their uh, respective pleasing objects and displeasing objects do not become uh, repulsive. And the Buddha concluded saying, it is in such a way that there is restraint. Sense restraint means that we are watchful of our senses all the time so that we know what object is entering through these six different sense doors. Practicing sense restraint means that we must apply constant and uninterrupted mindfulness in order to be aware of what object is entering the mind. And this is what we are actually doing here in meditation. Whatever object is entering the mind through one of these six sense doors, we note them mindfully, attentively. We are aware of them. So when a visible object enters our mind, we are aware of this visible object. We are aware of seeing. And so we can note it as seeing, seeing. Or as we hear a sound, we are mindful that we are hearing at this moment. And it can be noted as hearing, hearing. So with this, we practice sense restraint so that the eye doesn't pull in the direction of the pleasing forms or that we do not get repulsed by displeasing forms. Or in other words, this um, sense restraint, this being mindful, being aware, um, this is also um, called, or we can call it, the non-reactivity, which I was talking about um, in my last talk. So in the same way then, the other sense doors, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind, then they do not pull into the direction of their favorite um, uh, habitats or domains. Once we had a foreign yogi in our forest center in Burma who ate a whole banana without peeling it. He ate it with the skin. That day I and 
Mimi, my Burmese friend, we happened to watch the yogis while they were eating. And so we noticed this yogi who took the banana and started to eat it without peeling it. And he ate the whole banana. Nothing was left. On the following day, there were interviews. And so then during the interviews, um, he reported that on the previous day at lunchtime, he was eating the banana without peeling it because he wanted to see, he wanted to check if his mind uh, would react to it. But then he said, there was no reaction in the mind. <laughs> So when we are mindful, um, that means, in other words, that we are just uh, aware of the object or that we just know the object for what it is. A visible object is just a visible object. Nothing more, nothing less. A tactile sensation is just a tactile sensation, nothing more, nothing less. Everything else is delusion. Everything else is our judgment, our commentary. A visible object or a tangible object, they are neither good or bad. They are neither pleasing or displeasing. It's only based on our views, on our opinions, on our conditioning that we call an object good or bad, or that we find it pleasing or displeasing, that we like it or that we dislike it. At another time, the Buddha told one of his monks, Bahia, Bahia, this is the way to practice. When you see, just see it. When you hear, just hear it. When you think, just think it. When you know, just know it. You must practice in this way, just knowing each phenomena as it occurs. This last phrase, just knowing each phenomena as it occurs, means to penetrate into the true nature of each phenomena and see its absolute nature, which lies beyond our conventional way of perceiving things. It is through the veil of delusion that we do not penetrate into the absolute reality of things, but that we stay at the surface of outer appearances and see things merely on a conventional level. On a conventional level, we have women and men, cats and dogs, houses and trees, mountains, rivers, the sun and the moon. A woman, for example, 
is just the name given to the dual process of materiality and mentality which arises and disappears all the time and it is due to certain causes and conditions. Or a tree, for example, is just a material process which came into being through certain causes and conditions and it will disappear when these causes and conditions are not there anymore. The name tree is just a convenient name given to an ever-changing material process which assumes a certain form, certain shape and a certain color. There is no tree-ness in the word tree. If there were an absolute tree-ness in the word tree, then a tree would only have a valid existence for English-speaking people. Because in Switzerland we have the same material processes which have the same form, shape and color, but there we call it Bäum, or in Germany they would call it Bäume. In Italy they call such a thing albero, or in Fren uh, French people call it arbre, or in Burma people call it apin. So tree, Bäume, albero, these are just are words that we use for easy communication with each other. It's nothing wrong with that, but we just should be aware that in the words um, there is not um, that this that this is not the actual thing. So speaking on a conventional level, um, this is called Vohara Sacha the conventional reality, the conventional truth. Opposed to the conventional truth, we have absolute reality or absolute truth. And this is called Paramatta Satcha. So when the Buddha said, just knowing each phenomena as it occurs, he referred to seeing things as they really are, which means to see things in their absolute nature, to see them in their absolute reality. In the discourse of the parable of the log, the Buddha said that if we are caught on the far bank, that means the external sense objects, then we will not be carried down by the current of the stream to the ocean. However, if we can apply mindfulness and note, for example, a soft and nice, pleasant touching sensation, as it is at the time of its arising, then there will not arise thoughts of liking or attachment, but then we just stay with the knowing of the bare 
sensation of touch. And so then the mind will not get caught up in these unwholesome mental states. And so then the mind stays undisturbed, undefiled. The mind stays clear and pure, just knowing the object as it actually is, without our commentary or judgment on top of it. So that, that means that we are not caught on the far bank. So then the yogi is still flowing with the current of the river and in due time she or he will be carried down all the way to the ocean. In Switzerland we have <clears throat> the Alps. Um, the Alps are a great uh, dividing range for different rivers to flow in different directions. One big river is called the Rhine and it originates in the northeastern part of the Alps. It flows north all the way through Germany and Holland and flows into the North Sea. Another river, the Rhone, originates in the west of the Alps and then it flows through France, it flows southwards all the way into the Mediterranean Sea. Another big river called Inn originates in the eastern part of the Alps and it flows eastwards all the way to the Black Sea. So these rivers, they all flow into different directions, but ultimately they all flow into the sea. The current of every river or stream always inclines towards the sea, towards the ocean. It never flows upstream or back to its source. And in the same way, the current of right understanding, which arises through mindfulness, inclines towards liberation of the mind and freedom from suffering. It is with mindfulness, with awareness, that we can restrain our senses and be watchful all the time of what is going on at the six sense doors. As the Buddha told Bahia, when you hear, just hear it. So hearing a sound, we try to be mindful of just hearing, nothing more. We even can note it, label it, hearing, hearing, so that we can stay with the bare fact of the experience, which is hearing. When we are smelling something, then we could try with mindfulness, with awareness of just smelling, know the smell for what it is, without getting caught up in our proliferation and noting it, labeling it, smelling, smelling, helps to stay with the bare experience. 
So if we can do this whenever one of the six sense objects arises, then we would not get caught on the far bank. And so we would be still carried down in the current of the river. As long as our mindfulness is continuous, constant, constant and uninterrupted, the basic defilements of greed, hatred and delusion cannot arise in the mind. And as a result, the mind stays clear, pure, undefiled. It is only with an undefiled and pure mind that we can penetrate into deeper levels of understanding and discover the absolute nature of phenomena. Actually, this absolute nature of all phenomena is not hidden somewhere and only accessible for a few selected beings. Absolute reality lies openly in front of us and can be seen by the eye of wisdom. As long as our eyes are covered by the veil of delusion, we are groping in the darkness of ignorance. But with the practice of meditation, we try to lift this veil of delusion so that we can see the truth which is actually lying just in front of us. Then we will not be caught on the near or far bank of the river and the current of right understanding will eventually carry us into the vast ocean of wisdom. Let's sit for a few moments.
May all of you be very swiftly carried down into the ocean of Nibbana. Now let's chant the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.